This is not the media. This is hell. The burden of debt can be crushing. Debt can control your life, forcing you to do what you may not want to do in order to service not only the principal on that debt, but the interest and all the fees that come with debt that you never even knew existed. For people of color and women, the weight of debt on your shoulders can be even worse as there are still discriminatory lending practices in place and far too often borrowers are forced into taking low-wage jobs in order to avoid falling behind on loans. Today, we are in more debt than ever. Without the social safety nets we once had that were funded by public resources, we now need to borrow to afford things that were once very affordable before the private sector took them over, like healthcare and education. So lower taxes, ripping holes in the social safety net means more debt for everyone, except the very wealthy who get rich off of you being more and more in hock. Luckily, there is a way to combat this spiral of debt and that, that, that spiral of debt that does lead to death, and it's called economic disobedience. You've heard of civil disobedience. It's the same thing, but instead of chaining yourself to the front door of a federal building, you simply refuse to pay debt. You prefer not to, and you disobey. So how can this be done? We'll find out in a few when we speak with Thomas Gokey, an organizer with the Debt Collective, which collectively authored the new book, can't pay, won't pay, the case for economic disobedience and debt abolition. The Debt Collective is a new kind of union, a debtor's union that transforms individual financial struggles into a source of collective power by enabling its members to dispute debts and engage in strategic campaigns of economic non-cooperation. The Debt Collective's writer's block includes Ann Larson, past guest here on This Is Hell, Astra Taylor, Hannah Appel, Thomas Gokey, our guest today, and Laura Hanna. The foreword of Can't Pay, Won't Pay is by several time past guest here on This Is Hell, Astra Taylor. You can find out more about Debt Collective at debtcollective.org. You can follow Debt Collective on Twitter at the number zero debt zone, zero debt zone. Also check out Thomas's New York Review of Books obituary of David Graeber from September. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what are you going to be deranged about after Trump? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? Oh, uh, the collective's Twitter account also might be strike debt. Oh, you have strike debt as well? They might have multiple ones. All right. Well. How much research did you have to do on uh, debt resistance when uh, we've had debt collectors call the studio during the show before? <laughs> uh, have the debt collectors just given up in your case? I assume. There's no really point in picking up on those phone calls. You know, if you take two phones and you put the speaker of one to the uh, listening part of the other, you can make this horrible feedback that debt collectors hate? Ah, just thought. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell face mask. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell face mask and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to you for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can email it to us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment of truth, Jeff looks at the... No, that is not what he's doing. I have a the wrong moment of truth here, so... Well, it's just going to be after uh, Jeff hammers the history of class consciousness into shape. For whatever reason, it copy and pasted every other one in here. Repeat it again one more time there, Alex. Uh, Jeff hammers the history of class consciousness into shape. Alex, I have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. What are you uh, going to be deranged about after Trump? Following our guest, and yes, during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin hammers the history of class consciousness into shape. And I finally remembered to look up the definition of deranged, and deranged means to cause someone to become insane. It also means to throw something into confusion and cause something to act irregularly. And man, you are correct, Alex. Donald Trump 
as president has made people shocked and filled with outrage, skewing their normal perceptions, behavior, and how they interact socially. People who dreamt of someday having world peace were suddenly against peace talks with North Korea, something those same people supported when the Clinton administration was in talks to limit the likelihood of military engagement between the U.S. and North Korea. Deranged is when your politics suddenly are defined by being in opposition to whatever Donald freaking Trump says or does. Donald Trump is deranged, and you can't fight fire with fire. Okay, you can, and fire lines are a regular part of firefighting and wildfires. But but you can't fight fire with fire, and you can't fight derangement with becoming deranged yourself. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell, and this is not the future that I thought I would be in 33 years ago today. When I went out on my first date with the woman I am still with, taking her to the aptly named... Bangkok Inn, aptly named because it was a Thai restaurant that specialized in the cuisine of Bangkok. I don't know what else you were thinking, but that's why it was called the Bangkok Inn. As this is our 33rd anniversary, and with absolutely no input whatsoever from my girly, I thought I would share my secrets to a successful long-term healthy... Okay, happy. Okay, let's stick with long-term relationship. Keep in mind, when she hears this monologue on Saturday morning, as she still listens to the show on WNUR, I may be in a lot of trouble. So if you are listening live this Saturday morning, at this moment, I may have a girlfriend who is filled with love for me, or in the midst of throwing what little I own out on the lawn. Either way, I hope at least you are enjoying your Saturday morning. So, near as I can figure, the reason we've been together for as long as we have, without the enforcement of a marriage license, mind you, is because, completely based on my own personal experience, first, don't get a marriage license, as in don't get married. Who wants the state looming over your love life, insisting that you fulfill some freaking contract with the government? Besides, who the hell wants it? Take on the burden of somebody else's nightmare with capitalism. My own nightmare is bad enough. Why impose that on somebody else and then be intimately involved with their disturbing encounters with the free market. If you want to have the kind of successful long-term relationship that I am engaged in, from my perspective at least, it would appear that one of you should probably be stoned the majority of the time, and you should probably share at least one vice with whatever you want to call the person with whom you will be spending the rest of your life, or at least that's the plan, or at least that should be. I know people who got married to save a failing relationship. Didn't work. I've known people who knew the marriage wouldn't last, got married anyway, or soon after divorced, and totally fine with it because they knew it wouldn't work from the beginning. But if you want to have a long-term relationship, you got to commit. you got to know this is the one, and being stoned or drunk every so often definitely helps with that long-term commitment. Yes, our non-marriage has outlasted plenty of marriages. We've gone to wedding after wedding as an unmarried couple. We are still unmarried, and a lot of those people in those weddings are now unmarried too. The only difference is they now hate each other, and we're still happily unmarried. Along the way, you'll get in an argument, and you might think, this is it, the fight that means it's all over. If you do get in an argument, if you get in a verbal contest, Consider the number of drinks you have had and ask each other, is this a drunken fight? Because drunken fights usually end up being really, really stupid, and stupid fights are the worst kind because they do not make any sense and they end up in more stupidity. You've probably heard this before, but this one actually works. Never go to bed angry at each other. In our decades together, I can only recall going to bed angry at the love of my life once, and it sucked because... When I got up in the middle of the night for a burglar check, I was still angry. And there was better not be a burglar in the house because I was definitely ready to take out that anger on somebody. You then have trouble falling back asleep, likely waking up the person you are angry with and potentially rekindling that argument at 3 in the morning. Worse yet is if you wake up the next morning feeling mad for some odd reason and you cannot put your finger on it. And then when you do, you're right back in that angry place, except now that anger is no longer fresh and its staleness makes it normal. And just like that, being mad at the person you are with is somehow tolerable and your relationship is likely headed to a dead end. If you've actually made the mistake of going to bed angry, you have two choices. One, ignore it and watch your relationship slowly slide into a disaster. Or two, talk it out as soon as possible to erase the mistake you made at going to bed angry. Of course, you could have mutual mutual interests, but, you know, don't go overboard with it. Make certain that you have divergent interests from the person you are with so you can 
not only learn about some field your partner, mate, whatever has expertise in, but also so you can share whatever knowledge you have with them. And there's this bonus. If you have knowledge in a certain area where the person you live with has none, suddenly you're an expert and your ego gets a boost. My girlie knows nothing about sports and has absolutely no interest. But when I'm going off about some trivial BS, suddenly my perspective is unchallengeable because she doesn't care. Also, if you want to be in a secure long-term relationship, try to find someone who is disabled in some way. They seem to be committed to relationships more than your more arrogant, able-bodied freaks. Look, none of this may work for you. After we had been together for over 20 years, a former co-worker of my girlfriend got married and immediately started blogging about how to have a successful marriage, despite the ink on her marriage license still being wet. There are plenty of people who have been together longer than we have who are likely scoffing at my tips for a long-term relationship. There are also people who have been together for a far shorter period of time who may be in healthier, happier relationships. In other words, don't take others' advice. Do what works best for the two of you together. Don't have a relationship in a certain way because you think that's the way you are supposed to have a relationship. Don't force whatever the two or more of you have into some model of conformity that would look perfect to your family or neighbors or would fulfill some societal standards of what a relationship is supposed to be, no matter how much pressure you may get from your said family and friends, just do what's best for you. So if you want to have a long-term relationship like I have had with my girlie, at least from my viewpoint, don't get married. Indulge in your vices and share at least one with your partner. Avoid arguments while being inebriated. Don't go to bed angry. Pursue and share your interests if they are your partners or not. Find yourself a disabled person and don't take advice from anyone when it comes to your relationship. If you take all those suggestions to heart, who knows, maybe like me when you woke up this morning and saw the person who you are still head over heels in love with, the first thing you blurt out in the morning just may not be this is hell we are still looking for new volunteer board operators here on this is hell if you are interested in being a board op like alex is like richard is like we trained jess and daphne to do this week all you have to do is email us at chuck at this is hell.com this position does come with a very modest stipend so keep that in mind we are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from one two three four even all five days every week here at our studios above carrie's lounge 2251 west devon in chicago So if you live in the Chicago area, that would be a position best for you. We are also looking for volunteers to help us out remotely on other projects. Again, if you are interested in that, contact us at chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up, the crushing burden of debt and how to overcome it collectively. And more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. Debt is threatening lives across the United States at this very moment. The front page of today's, this morning's New York Times has the headline, $52,112 air ambulance ride. COVID patients' surprise bills, anxiety over charges can interfere with recovery. Yes, debt can be bad for your health, and with a pandemic raging again across the United States, more and more of us are going to go into more and more debt. So what can be done? Here to give us an alternative to the crushing burden of debt. Thomas Gokey is an organizer with the Debt Collective, which collectively authored the new book, can't pay, won't pay the case for economic disobedience and debt abolition before we even get started. Thomas, what is the Twitter account that you want us to be using? Because I found one that said zero debt zone, but then Alex had a different one. Uh, It's uh, at strike debt. Okay, it is at strike debt. Alex was correct. I'm writing that down now. Uh, thank you for being on our show. You can find out more about the Debt Collective at debtcollective.org. And you, can, you should check out Thomas's New York Review of Books obituary of uh, David Graeber from last month. It was uh, very, very thoughtful. Uh, this book is co-written by other Debt Collective's writers, block members, including Ann Larson, Astra Taylor, a past guest on our show, who also wrote the foreword to Can't Pay, Won't Pay, as well as Hannah Appel, Thomas, our guest, and Laura Hanna. So, Thomas, the Debt Collective writes in early 2000, Pam 
Hunt got an email letting her know that the approximately $40,000 in student loans she incurred for attending a for-profit college would be erased by the U.S. Department of Education. The Trump administration did not make the decision to cancel Pam's debt as an act of kindness. Far from it, officials were forced to act because debtors had been engaged in a years-long campaign of economic disobedience. Trump's billionaire Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, only issued discharges with what she described as extreme displeasure. What they had in common was debt. Everyone had attended a criminal for-profit college that had systematically defrauded its students, burying them in unpayable loans with fun- while funneling money to shareholders. The Corinthian strikers argued that their debts were illegitimate and should be canceled. For-profit colleges, they insisted, should be shut down in public education made free for all. Was this college debt seen as unacceptable by the public? Why was this seen as unacceptable by the public? But student loan debt from non-for-profit, non-so-called predatory educational institutions, why can that happen? But forgiving debt from traditional colleges seemingly cannot. Why is it that this kind of debt, this kind of student debt was unacceptable by the public, but other debt is completely acceptable? I mean, it's it's our view of the debt collective that nobody should be forced into debt to get an education. So we we are, keep our eyes on the prize of that one point seven trillion dollars of student debt, and we want to cancel all of it. Uh, the The reason why we started specifically with organizing students at predatory for profit colleges is that there are some legal protections that we could use. Uh, that applied in that particular case that don't necessarily apply to you know students who attended um, you know a, a public university, and the trouble is that those legal protections were not being enforced. They were on the books, but they were never used, and so we had to organize uh, a, a strike, a student debt strike, in order to force the Obama administration administration to start actually applying the laws that we're supposed to be protecting people to begin with. Uh, The people like Pam, who were forced into massive amounts of debt for what amounts to a fake education, were failed at every single point in the process. Uh, There were so many failures. uh, And this last failure of not uh, applying the the legal protections that would cancel their debt uh, was really sort of the last straw. And so I, I do think that the general public is maybe more receptive to the idea that these fraudulent fake schools shouldn't exist, that that debt should be wiped out. But uh, we want to, to use that and build on that to say that uh, education really should be considered a public good. All of us benefit when you get an education. And this student debt, this massive collective $1.7 trillion worth of student debt, it's hurting all of us. Even those of us without any student debt uh, are being hurt by it. And it would help everybody if we canceled it all. I want to get to how it hurts us all. But first, why do you think that those rules, those laws weren't being enforced? You know, that's the whole idea. Activists like yourself, organizers like yourself, you work to get the laws changed. Then the laws get written. The laws get changed. So why weren't they being enforced? It seems like all of that work by those who did get those laws on the books, did get those rules on the book, went for naught. You know, it's a really interesting question because in this case, the... The, the law in question is called the Borrower Defense to Protection, and it gets a little bit technical, like I don't know how much in the weeds we want to get, but it wasn't really the result of activists demanding some new law. It was, it, it was slipped in almost without notice uh, during the, the Clinton administration when they were reauthorizing uh, the Higher Education Act. And it's a, it's a very simple, like one-sentence law that says, if your school broke state law and you wound up in debt as a result, you have the right to assert a defense to repayment. You shouldn't have to, to pay it. Uh, but it was such a small little sentence that most people didn't even know it existed. In fact, high-ranking uh, officials at the Department of Education didn't know it existed. Uh, there had been a few lawyers who had tried to... Uh, 
use this law advocating on behalf of individual clients and they got nowhere with it. Uh, so it wasn't really, and, and there, was, there was no paperwork to file a claim or to get the process started. So the debt collective had to actually like create our own paperwork. We created our own forms. We got uh, over 10,000 people to file uh, one of these claims. And then we surprised high-ranking officials at the Department of Education by handing them a, a red box full of the first wave of these applications. And at that point, they were sort of stuck. You know, the law was on our side. The facts were on our side. Uh, they, hadn't, they had no process to um, process these claims, but uh, they, they tried to wiggle out of it. Uh, and to, to your question, why wasn't this law uh, ever enforced? I think it's because uh, this law protects poor people. Uh, it, you know, these predatory for-profit universities, they specifically target people who have less power and less status in our society. Uh, they're targeting single mothers, they're targeting veterans. The GI Bill is a huge moneymaker for these predatory schools. They're targeting first-generation students, students of color. And, uh, you know, the Department of Education just doesn't care about poor people. They really don't. Uh, so it wasn't until we got organized and forced them to care, uh, forced them to do things they didn't want to do, like cancel this debt, uh, that we, we got some results. Uh, and we've won over a billion dollars worth of debt discharge through this process, which is not nothing, but it's just getting started, right? We, we, we're still keeping our eyes on that prize of all $1.7 trillion of student debt. Thomas, how does unpaid student debt affect us all? How, how does not having all of this, how, how does all of this debt being out there, $1.7 trillion that isn't being paid back, how does that affect people who say aren't in any student loan debt? It's uh, a great question. And a few years ago, there was this large economic study on the macroeconomic effects of student debt cancellation, where a team of economists, including uh, Stephanie Kelton, just asked a very simple question. What would the economic impact be if we canceled all student debt? And what they found is it's almost all positive, really, really positive. The economy grows dramatically. Uh, millions of new jobs are created. Uh, so even if you don't have any student debt, you should be hoping that all of this gets canceled because we are in the midst of a Great Depression and we need to pull every single lever that we can to get out of it. Uh, so you can imagine if you have six figures of student debt and you've got a uh, $1,000 student debt payment every single month, uh, that's $1,000 that you aren't spending at local businesses. That's $1,000 that you aren't spending on your basic necessities like food, utilities. Uh, people are struggling to make rent payments right now. Removing that uh, student debt burden will free up resources to do those other things. Uh, we know from you know, dozens and dozens of studies that people aren't having children, they aren't getting married, uh, they're working less stable jobs, um, and they're not buying cars, they're not buying houses, uh, all because of this student debt. So it's, it's a drag on all of us. It hurts all of us. And again, education itself benefits all of us. All of us benefit when someone we don't know uh, gets an education and reaches their full potential and then becomes a contributing citizen in our society. Uh, so we really need to, I think, re-examine the whole purpose of education and how we finance education uh, to begin with, because the way that we're doing it now isn't good for anybody. So would ignoring this debt, would dismissing this debt, would forgiving student debt, 
how bad would that be for the economy? That's what we're always told, that if some, if we didn't pay back these loans, it would be detrimental to financial services. It would be detrimental to lenders. It would be detrimental to banks. That would have an impact on Wall Street. That would undermine people's, let's say, their 401k or whatever their investments are for retirement. So how bad or how good can forgiving student debt be for the economy? Yeah, we've always been told this is impossible. We can't do it. And what, this, what the pandemic has showed us is that all kinds of things that we were told were impossible were actually possible all along. We can suspend rent payments. We can suspend mortgage payments. We can suspend student debt payments. And uh, instead of having bad things happen, uh, it actually helps people out to do that. Um, and in the case of student debt, it's a little bit different since most of that debt, 93% of it to be precise, is uh, debt held by the federal government itself. So that gives them uh, sort of a unique situation. They, it, it really isn't that different from just pressing delete on a spreadsheet. Um, uh, nobody is getting harmed when we cancel this debt. Instead, we're all benefiting. You even say that the government, in this case, are the debt vultures. How is the government, how are they the debt vultures? I thought all these loans were sold off to private institutions, not the government itself. So how is the government a debt vulture in this situation? Yeah, so the student debt landscape is complicated. But since around 2009-2010, the federal student loans have been coming directly from the federal government. We call them direct loans. Uh, Prior to that, federal student loans were originating at Wall Street banks, but they were originating under the terms of the federal student lending law. So we still refer to it as as a federal student loan. So the those direct loans are not currently being sold off to private companies. They are held by the federal government and the federal government can very easily just delete them. The reason, and this is what I want all of your listeners to understand. The reason that you are in debt right now, if you have student debt is because the president and the department of education wants to keep you in debt. They could, if they wanted to cancel it all. That is true for the current administration, and that will be true for the next administration. And so what the Debt Collective wants to do is organize to force that cancellation to happen. The Debt Collective, and in your writing with your uh, collective writers, uh, you write that the chains of compound interest tug more heavily on some than others. A 2016 study found that black graduates have about 7400 more dollars in student debt upon graduation than their white counterparts. Four years later, that gap increases to $25,000. A combination of predatory interest rates and discriminatory low wages, earning less makes it harder to pay back a loan, ensure that people, black women like Pam Hunt, suffer the most. Is there racial equal access to student loan rates? Are there discriminatory loan rates that people of color and women may experience simply based on race and gender that white people may not, because this is something that white people may not know about. There is racism baked into this on every single level, starting with the gap in intergenerational wealth, right? If you look at who is forced into debt to get an education in the first place, it's not the genuinely wealthy, right? They're going to school and graduating debt-free Uh, not because they worked really hard while they were in high school, but because their parents have a lot of wealth. Uh, And because of the racial wealth gap, black and brown students are forced to borrow more money from the beginning in order to get an education. Then when they graduate, they face discrimination in hiring. Uh, There have been studies that show that a white worker with a high school diploma has about as equal chance of getting hired as a black graduate with an undergraduate degree. So that creates an additional difficulty in terms of 
trying to pay back this student debt. Uh, there's a direct correlation between how wealthy your family is and how much debt you have to go into in the first place. And then there's all kinds of perfectly legalized, predatory, racist lending that takes place. For example, there are private student lenders that will allow you to consolidate your federal student loans and uh, convert them into a private student loan with a lower interest rate. But they don't do that for everybody. Instead, they are looking at your income and your credit score. And then we've got a, a number of studies that show that your credit score uh, also has these racial dimensions to it. And so although it's technically illegal to discriminate in hiring on the basis of race, you can still discriminate on a credit score if you run a, a credit check. And it just so happens because of uh, intergenerational wealth gap and racism at every point in our system that uh, black and brown people have lower credit scores in the, the bigger scheme of things. So it provides this legal backdoor to do racial discrimination in hiring and in lending. Uh, so if you make a large income and you've got a high credit score, you can convert your federal student loans into a private loan at a lower interest rate. But those same private companies will deny you the lower interest rate if you uh, don't make as much money or you don't have as good of a, a credit score. And the net effect is that wealthier, whiter people pay lower interest on those private student loans. That's just one example, but there are many, many, many other examples. Uh, so one of the points that we try to make in Can't Pay, Won't Pay is that we can't just fully fund public education moving forward. These have to be reparative public goods. They have to uh, try to address those fundamental uh, inequalities in wealth uh, to repair centuries of racist discrimination. Uh, it can't just be universal free education. It needs to be reparative. Why do we believe, I've, I've never figured this out, Thomas, why do we believe credit scores have no bias and can credit scores, can there be credit scores that do not reinforce institutional racism? Is that even possible? That is such a fascinating question. And it's something that I've thought about quite a bit, right? Because why, why do we need a credit score in the first place? Uh, a, a credit score is a number that creditors put on each one of our heads and it's a giant surveillance system to try to surveil our behavior and then determine how risky we are, how risky we are to lend to. Uh, but you know, if you're a single mother working at Walmart and you can't pay your credit card bill, it's not because you're less responsible. Uh, it's because Walmart isn't paying you enough. Uh, and so, is, is there some need for something like a credit score, right? A credit score allows us to uh, enter into relationships with strangers who we don't know, who we don't know who is trustworthy or not trustworthy, right? But the way credit scores work don't really tell us how trustworthy somebody is. They just tell us how risky they are to the 1%. Um, so, I, I have been thinking, what would a people's credit score look like? Uh, something that would penalize Walmart for saying Walmart's untrustworthy. Uh, um, and when you boil down debt and just the language that we use around debt, it does come down to something fundamental like trust, right? So one of the things that is build new bonds with each other, bonds of trust, bonds of solidarity, that allow us to do other things. Um, and to some degree, that's just good old-fashioned union organizing, right? You can't declare a strike unless you trust your coworkers have got your back. 
Um, so we do need to somehow build these, these bonds of trust, but it gets difficult when you have to build these bonds of trust with people you, you don't know. Um, uh, you know, we saw in the campaign Bernie Sanders' slogan, uh, are you willing to fight for someone that you don't know? Um, and the issue of like a people's credit score is, uh, will you fight for someone you don't know and can you trust them that, that, that they're going to have your back too? Uh, and this is, I think, an open-ended question. And one of the things that gets me so organizing is that we don't have all of the answers, but we get to invent them together. So maybe some of your listeners have some good ideas and want to get involved and uh, help us build this, this new kind of union in which there are, there are bonds of trust among debtors. And if anybody does have any of those kind of ideas, and our listeners are really great with ideas like that, Thomas, uh, all you have to do is just email us, chuck at thisishell.com, and we will share those on the air. I, it, there's a big part of what we were talking about just earlier about how I don't think people are aware of the kind of burdens that the poor often go through, that people of color often go through when it comes to debt. And as the debt collective writer's block states, those without access to a bank account are harshly penalized. 10% of families spend money on alternative financial services such as check cashers, out that cash checks for a fee and payday lenders, lenders whose high interest loans trap desperate borrowers in endless cycles of debt. But can't anybody, Thomas, get a bank account and an ATM card and have access to their cash at any time? Who can't get a bank account? Because I think that there is this belief amongst white people that anybody can get a bank account. It is extremely expensive to be poor. So it's, there's a couple different issues at work here, right? One is not just um, whether or not you're technically able to open up a bank account, but the other is, does it even make sense to do so? Does it cost you more money to have a bank account? Because if you're constantly floating uh, above or below water, uh, the, the late fees, the overdraft fees, just make it too expensive to have a bank account. Uh, so there, there is a massive unbanked and underbanked population in the United States. Uh, and you can look at the statistics and it, it gets especially bad in places like Mississippi and Alabama. And one of the things that gets me so excited about debtor organizing is that this is a perfect opportunity for mutual aid, right? If you don't have a bank account, it costs you on average 10% of your income just to access and spend your own money, which is still cheaper than if you had a, a bank account that was either constantly being frozen by your creditors or slapping you with uh, late fees and overdraft fees. But if I have a bank account and you don't, and you have a job at, that, that gives you a paycheck every week and you need some way to cash it, you can endorse it over to me and I could pay you the full amount. There is no reason we need to force people to go to payday lenders or check cashers to do this. We can do this ourselves. We can build an, a mutual aid network through something like a debtor's union to do it for each other. And one of the you know, brilliant aspects of, of doing it this way is that if you look at payday lenders and where they actually make their revenue, a lot of times it's not from the payday loans itself. It's from all of these additional uh, alternative financial services like check cashing. So if we created a mutual aid network in a city where we were all cashing each other's checks and charging them nothing to do so, uh, we could actually bankrupt a lot of the payday lenders in our city because that's where their money is really coming from. It's from those alternative financial services. But ultimately, we need to tie debtor organizing to traditional labor organizing. Because if people got paid what they're worth uh, to begin with, they wouldn't be forced into debt. They wouldn't be trying to keep their head above water. They'd be able to have a bank account without uh, being hit with all of these additional fees. So it's, it's not as if we can just solve the debt side of the equation without also addressing the, the pay side of the equation. 
The Debt Collective writes, in a later age, various American colonies were a magnet for the insolvent. Shays' Rebellion and other debtors' revolts struck fear into the hearts of many of the American founding fathers, inspiring James Madison to call against the wicked project of debt abolition in the Federalist Papers and leading some scholars to refer to the U.S. Constitution as a creditor's constitution. If the Constitution is a creditor's constitution, is the founding document of the United States about we the people are protecting banks and lenders. Was the United States then, was it founded on debt? Is the abolition of debt from the beginning un-American? You know, this is a, a very fascinating topic. Uh, the, the founding fathers had uh, interesting debates among themselves. Some of them were massively in debt themselves. Thomas Jefferson was hugely in debt and, uh, after he died, some of his slaves were sold to pay off his debt. Um, and then they, they were sort of structuring the, the Constitution and the United States uh, in, in order to make, uh, rather than having equality and freedom for everybody, uh, to sort of make it safe for capitalism. And uh, from the get-go, we're terrified of uh, debtors' organizations. And if you want to zoom back even further in history, uh, we can see that uh, throughout most of human history, one way of just move far away. Uh, if you look at the, the anthropologists and historians who study that, say a lot of the cities that were founded uh, were actually founded as initially as debtors' colonies. If, if everybody is... Um, ends up over time massively in debt to just a few people, you've got a few options. You can have a violent revolution and kill the, the creditors and wipe the slates clean, or you can just pack up, hike over the mountains, and start a new city beyond their reach. Uh, in the early days of the, the colonies in the United States, people would move west in order to escape their debts. But today, in a global capitalist society where there's enormous surveillance, there's really nowhere left to run. Uh, and so it's, it's creating a new dynamic, a dynamic that the founding fathers didn't have to deal with, um, where the debts seem to be piling up and up and up and up, and something has to give. This is not sustainable, right? So historically, jubilees have always been a conservative tactic to release pressure on the society in order to keep the status quo in place. Because if you don't do something like that, the whole thing explodes. Well, what we have right now is the pressure building, 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 and at some point it's going to explode. Um, so we certainly don't want a conservative jubilee that keeps the status quo in place. We would like to see a revolutionary jubilee that fundamentally restructures how our economy is organized in the first place, so that people aren't forced into debt for their basic needs to begin with. And they're forced into those debts for their basic needs because, as you point out, there is no social safety net or what we have is far less funded than it was in the past. The Debt Collective also writes, in addition to wiping out unjust loans, the Debt Collective student debt strike helped change federal regulations, making it possible for the first time for defrauded student borrowers to get their debt discharged. For how long were these predatory for-profit universities allowed to rip off college students? Was this some kind of new education racket, a relatively new scheme? Did this Was this only a short window of a period of time, and now that time has passed? I wish so. It's still going on. These predatory for-profit schools still exist. They're still violating the law. They're still burying people under massive amounts of debt for a subpar education. Um, and, but it, it really has been since like the 1990s that we saw a, a boom in this for-profit sector. And uh, they tend to thrive, especially in recessions when people are uh, thinking, I'm, I'm out of work, I'll go back to school, I'll, I'll learn something more, and it'll help me get a new job. Um, but they, they wouldn't exist without 
the Department of Education being a full-fledged partner in crime. These schools need the federal student loans. They need the GI Bill. So the, the federal government could cut them off entirely, and that's exactly what we should do. It's what the next administration should do. These schools just simply should not exist. Um, it's very frustrating because a lot of the former officials in the Obama Department of Education are now either lobbying on behalf of the for-profit industry or some of them got together and purchased some of these for-profit schools. So their, their bread and butter comes from exploiting poor people. Uh, and when we do finally destroy this entire industry and it hurts these former Obama officials, uh, it, it couldn't happen to a nicer bunch of crooks. <laughs> so then tell me, what is student debt going to look like if Joe Biden is elected president on, in November? Is it going to look any different from the very pro-for-profit colleges with their predatory lending that the Obama administration had? If there is sort of a silver lining to the regrettable choice that we have in this election, it's that I think nobody is under the us, right? We have to do this ourselves. It's going to take a people's movement, uh, large scale uh, organizing, civil disobedience, direct action in order to get anything at, at all. But what we would like to see happen is that the again it's it's one of these fascinating things when you study the mechanisms that were designed to put us in debt they have all kinds of features that um uh most people aren't paying attention to right so the higher education act has built into it by congress essentially a self-destruct button uh the secretary of education has been granted the authority by Congress to compromise, settle, or waive any student debt for any reason whatsoever or no reason at all. So if they wanted to, they could cancel all federal student loans. Uh, so we need to organize to pressure the Biden administration to do that. So far, Biden has, is campaigning on canceling $10,000 for every student debtor. Uh, if he were to do that, it would at least uh, sort of let the genie out of the bottle, right? But there'll be no way that they can tell us in any kind of credible way that they can't just cancel all of this debt. Uh, but $10,000 is going to be a drop in the bucket for a lot of people. Um, and ultimately, we need to change how we finance higher education in the first place, right? We can afford to fully fund every public university in the country. It's very affordable to do this. Uh, legislation has been introduced in Congress to do this, uh, the College for All legislation. And so in order to really fix the root problem of student debt, it's going to require organizing to pass that legislation. And that's going to be a tough fight. It's, it's just like Medicare just like the Civil Rights Act, just like any major legislation in U.S. history, it's going to take a mass movement or it won't happen. You quote J. Paul Getty saying that if you owe a bank a million dollars, the bank owns you. But if you owe a bank a hundred million dollars, you own the bank. The debt collective writes, there has never been a better time for people who hold debt of all kinds to come together, refuse to pay and demand an economy that works for the vast majority instead of the few. As the people's debt increases, does the people's power over that debt increase? Does that lead to more power uh, over the banks? Only if we organize. There is no such thing as individual debt resistance, right? As an individual, this debt crushes us. And we're seeing this with the pandemic. People are losing their jobs. They're forced to max out their credit cards just to keep food on the table. People are at risk of losing their houses. Uh, Tens of millions of, of households are at risk of eviction. Uh, people have medical bills from getting COVID. 
and this is building up, up and up and up and up. And as individuals, it absolutely saps our power. But if we organize, it gives us an, an, an enormous amount of power to reshape uh, how our economy works in, in, in a fundamental way. And this is what we're seeing happening organically in the form of tenant unions all across the country, in the form of eviction defense happening all across the country. Uh, so there is already this, this um, uh, self-organizing movement that I think gives us uh, a lot of reasons for hope. This is a very, very difficult time with enormous amounts of suffering. But if there's one thing that we can say about this pandemic is that it is putting stress on every aspect of our society. It is breaking every aspect of our society. Nothing is going to be the same. So we should have some say in what it turns into. We should be negotiating from a position of power. And if we organize, our debt can be part of that power. I was just, there's a fascinating article in the New York Times that was published uh, yesterday about tenants who organized their apartment building in Minneapolis and evicted their landlord. They, out, they now own their own apartment building. That is beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. And that can happen on a larger scale, but it only happened on that apartment because they got organized. And, and this, I guess, is the basic takeaway. Uh, nothing is inevitable. We have everything to play for. It is, it is up to us. Uh, but if we organize and if we're willing to make sacrifices, we absolutely can win. And we need to win because our survival depends on winning. You just said that nothing is inevitable. But is an economy that is so dependent on debt sustainable? Can that continue forever? No, it can't. But it can break in several different ways, right? It can break in, in one way in which most of us end up without any health care and just die in a, in a pandemic or a forest fire. Um, yeah, things can get much, much worse. So, uh, yeah, I would say nothing, nothing is inevitable. We, we can have, uh, you know, we are on the verge of losing a lot of what is genuinely valuable. Uh, but we also have never been closer to widespread uh, debt cancellation. I mean, when we started organizing around uh, debt resistance in 2011 during Occupy, we were told that we were crazy, that mass student debt cancellation was never going to happen. It's now genuinely bipartisan. The latest, <coughs> excuse me, the latest um, stimulus negotiations, even the Republicans are, are uh, on board with a small amount of student debt cancellation. Uh, so it's no longer crazy. I mean, this, this is the only sort of common sense approach. Most of the debt, the personal debt, the household debt that exists needs to be canceled, period. Uh, and that includes credit card debt. That includes housing debt. We need to fundamentally change how we do housing in this country so it's not this privatized, profit-driven system in which real estate developers like Donald Trump basically run our government. Um, and, and not just Donald Trump on the federal level, but you know, New York State is held hostage by New York City real estate developers. Uh, so we have an opportunity in this crisis to rebuild our society in a completely different direction. We have been speaking with Thomas Gokey. He is an organizer with the Debt Collective, which collectively authored the new book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. The foreword to Can't Pay, Won't Pay is by several time past guest here on This Is Hell, Astra Taylor. You can find out more about Debt Collective at debtcollective.org. You can follow them on Twitter at Strike Debt. And as I was saying earlier, check out Thomas's brilliant New York review of books obituary of David Graeber from last month. Really exceptional writing there, Thomas. One last question for you. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, it is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. The Debt Collective writes, transforming our world's economic system is a big ambition. But that's what we need to do for one another and for our planet. 
How can ending debt save the planet? What impact can ending debt have on the fight against climate change? Well, this is fascinating, right? So uh, one, one mistake that I think some people make is they think, oh, the debt collective is trying to create a society without any debt whatsoever. But debt at a fundamental level is just a social bond. So the, the main question we want everybody to ask is what do we really owe and to whom? And what we saw for, with things like uh, World War II, we won World War II in part because of really visionary, creative finance. We financed uh, the war with a, a, an enormous amount of ingenuity. And when it comes to beating climate change, it's going to require ingenuity on the level of engineers designing new carbon capture technologies. It's going to require ingenuity on uh, the level of government policy, but it's also going to require new forms of finance. We can live, I, uh, somebody said, um, debt is like a, a time machine. It allows you to live in the future today. We need to create a, a, a very different kind of future, and that's going to require financing it. Uh, the Green New Deal is the way that we can do that. Um, and uh, I, I think reviving some of these uh, techniques from World War II, uh, you know, <laughs> when people say, uh, you know, it's not cost effective. When we're talking about avoiding extinction, any cost is going to be effective, right? And uh, making millions of new jobs in order to uh, decarbonize our economy is exactly the path that we need to take. Uh, and I'm, I'm rambling a bit here, but I, I actually think that that can help us solve climate change and one thing we didn't really touch on is the, the concept of climate debt, which we treat to some degree in the book. Uh, we also need to recognize that uh, the CO2 emissions are not created equally by every person in the uh, economy, right? It's the 1% who have been pumping out more of the carbon. It's been uh, Europe and the United States who have created most of this crisis, but it's the, the brunt is being borne by the, the global south. And so we have a different kind of debt and a different kind of obligation there. And I think one of the key things that we need to change is our immigration policy as we are going to see climate refugees all across the world. And uh, it's, it's very terrifying to think that these imaginary national borders are going to become uh, it, the worst case scenario is sort of sites of, of genocide as, as people are not allowed to flee to more livable climates. And as you point out in the book, uh, it's the rich who become more rich. It's the 1% who get to be more and more wealthy as that debt increases. So more debt, more inequality, more wealth for the rich, more less for the rest of us something that we should always keep in mind. Thomas, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. The Debt Collective's work is absolutely fantastic, and people should check it out at debtcollective.org, and you can follow Debt Collective at Strike Debt. Thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, thanks so much for having us. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Merce. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's this week's question from hell and how are listeners responding? This week's question from hell is, what are you going to be deranged about after Trump? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? And I just so for the record there, you got the bong hitting thing in before I got to hang up on it. I like that. <laughs> uh, Mark A.S. says, the seven, headed, the seven dragon heads that will grow from Trump's defeated swamp. <laughs> MJG says, everything. <laughs> what are you going to be? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? We have a new leader. <laughs> Jeff G says personally, I'm going back to fighting over whether Miller Lite tastes great or is less filling. John H says money in politics and the corruption it creates. Ray O says same old, same old. Class traitor Democrats. <laughs> Jacob J says future President Tucker Carlson's nightly rants about Kamala's Marxist Jamaican father. <laughs> uh, Krimsky K says do people still toddle in Chicago? <laughs> Maybe just toddlers. <laughs> Dan K says, you have always been deranged by Trump. 
And finally, Mark AC says, everything. I'll be suffering post-traumatic Trump disorder for years to come. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell face mask. Alex, what is this music? Oh, uh, sorry. It's a little loud. That's no, I'm just curious. It's uh, Hiroshi Suzuki's album Cat from oh. 1975. Oh. It sounded oddly familiar. And as I know, knew somebody who was way into Japanese jazz at the time. Maybe I did hear this in the Damn, past. Damn, good eye, good ear for Japanese jazz <laughs> over guess. there. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell face mask, which is the prize for the person who wins this week's question from hell. You can check it out at our website at thecell.com and click when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Alex, who's on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Uh, this is booked this 15 minutes ago. Oh, hot so, damn. Uh, Teresa Enright is going to be on to talk about her society and space piece, Commotion, which is all about transit networks are the objects of intense political contestation and are key terrains of struggle in cities around the world. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, when you sent that article earlier today, I was like, oh, there's a whole bunch of transit movements going on right now because we know that that kind of started the huge uh, protests within Brazil and their transit movement. So, yeah, really interesting stuff. So, uh, And also we'll have Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth this week. Jeff hammers the history of class consciousness into shape, so he'll be doing some smithing apparently. Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast, which is posted shortly after our live stream. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Thomas Goki and the Debt Collective and Alex Jerry for being on this week's show, today's show. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I'm a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is... Hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>